Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. We have a really fun edition of Getting to the Point for all of you listeners today. Of course, in this series, we try to focus on the importance of nutrition and fitness in the modern game, and there is no better guest to talk about those two things than the person joining us today on the show. You may know him from his time at the USTA. You may know him from his tennis Twitter handle. You may also know him as a former NCAA doubles champion while at Auburn University. Of course, I'm talking about Dr. Mark Kovacs, who joins the show today to talk about Uh, obviously the importance of nutrition and fitness in the modern game, but to share his expertise on what separates the best athletes from everyone else in the world. What sort of training are these athletes doing? How do you prevent yourself from overtraining? How can you be most efficient with the things you're doing on court or off of the court? Of course, what you should be putting into your body to give yourself that extra bit of advantage. You know, we like to think you should be putting arrow bars in your body, the only tennis-specific energy bar in the business, more potassium than a banana, delicious cinnamon, honey, oat, and chocolate chip flavors, but he talks about that and so much more. Of course, we have some fun talking about his tennis career. I ask him about some of the young guys, young gals on tour right now and his thoughts on which stand out the most athletically. It's a really fun conversation. Again, I don't know if there's anyone more qualified to speak about the sports science, about sports science and how it relates to tennis than Mark Kovac. So really excited we got to have him on the show today. Really excited for all of you listeners to hear that conversation. Of course, I have to say the reason we are able to have these conversations day in, day out here on the Cracked Interviews podcast because of the amazing support we get from our friends at Aerobar and Midwest Sports. As I mentioned, go to aerobar.com, use that promo code CRACKED15. You can order yourself up a case of the only tennis-specific energy bars in the business. Again, more potassium than a banana. Delicious cinnamon, honey, oat, and chocolate chip flavor. And, of course, by supporting them, you support this podcast as well. So go to aerobar.com. Use the promo code CRACKED15, of course, for all of your tennis equipment needs. Go to midwestsports.com. Use that promo code CR15. One other thing I want to note quickly before we get to this uh, podcast uh, interview. Unfortunately, I don't know why my computer decided to have one of those days. It is election day. I feel like all of us are feeling the stresses. And just to add uh, into the mix for me, my computer USB ports decided they didn't want to work uh, for my laptop today. So I am recording this intro outro via Daniel Westoff's laptop. Unfortunately, when I was recording the interview earlier this morning, this laptop was not available. So the audio quality, not exactly the way we wanted it to be, but still definitely good enough for you all to enjoy this interview. And again, it's the content of the interview we know you you all will be enjoying. So uh, we definitely are going to play this one for you all. But again, apologies that the microphone is not up to standards. And I have been saying this on all of our podcasts today. So if you listen to the GSP Ace of the Day, if you listen to the mini break, if you listen to this as well, I apologize for beating you down with this message. Certainly, it's been uh, pressed upon all of us by everyone uh, throughout our country here in the United States. And again, this is an American-centric message here, but just go vote. Today's the day you do that. Today's the day you express your political opinion. Today is the day when if you have any problems with the system, you want to change the way it works, you have to participate in the system. You have to be the change you want to see. I know that sounds very cliche, but you know, as someone who's 25 years old, don't. there's no reason why you should be just disillude, uh, disillusioned by the system or you know, dissuaded by the way this... Just go vote. Go vote. Go vote. Be the change you want to be. If you think and you and your friends are like-minded that you think one candidate is more representative of you... Guess Guess what? You can motivate those friends to go vote with you. That's how a democracy works. Just go do it, folks. And again, you know, this is a one-day message. We, I'm just asking you. I'm, I will say this. Three podcasts today from Cracked Interviews. You know you're concerned about those lines, waiting in line, going to vote. Just listen to all of your Cracked Rackets podcasts. You will be through that line in no time, and you will be prepared for the next day in the professional tennis world. And of course, the way we want to get all of you athletes, all of you listeners out there prepared uh, for the rigors of the current sport, too 
understand have a better understanding of the importance of fitness and nutrition we bring to you these getting to the point episodes so without further ado here is mark aerosmith and my conversation with the one and only dr mark kovacs of the kovacs institute Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Joining us on the podcast today, you know him as a sports scientist, research, author, coach, performance consultant. I know him as the wiser of the two Marks on today's podcast, Dr. Mark Kovacs. Mark, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Wonderful. I'm excited to be here. Looking forward to it. It is absolutely our pleasure, and I will say before we begin, got to get the disclosures out early. I'm a longtime fan, so I'm biased coming into this interview. You're going to get a lot of softballs heading into this one, just so you know, but obviously uh, a huge thank you to you for taking the time to chat with us today, Uh, and obviously we are chatting as we head down the home stretch of this 2020 season, so I do want to talk about you, your background with the sport, but my first question, because obviously as a sports scientist, I'm sure this was something... Uh, you were pondering much throughout the five-and-a-half-month layoff, layoff during this professional tennis season. What have you thought about the quality of the play over these past 12 weeks? Has, you know, in my opinion, I have seen it started out sloppy, but I think the level of play has gotten to a really high point at this part of the season. What have your thoughts been, Mark? Have you thought, you know, how have you thought these players handled the five-and-a-half months, and how has that translated to what we're seeing on tour? Yeah, no, it's a great question and something that I was spending actually a lot of time on with a number of players and coaches and federations was putting together these return to tennis plans. And a lot of it had to do with understanding that they had taken some significant time off, but how do you ramp up effectively, not only to help them improve performance, but also to reduce the likelihood of injury and from our testing that we were doing with some of the players, we were seeing actually performance improvements, like personal bests on a lot of things from serve speed to jump height to some endurance metrics uh, before the season started back up. And that was due to the extended rest period that these players had that they'd never had in their careers, taking three full months off without a need to train and to let the body recover. For many of them, was really a blessing and probably extended the careers of a number of players and what we did see as you mentioned was the first couple weeks was probably a little sloppy and that was just lack of match practice but from a physical perspective the majority of players actually looked better than before the break so you know it if there's a silver lining in all this craziness that's going on it's that ability for players to take some significant time off that they've never really been able to in the past. Mm-hmm. No, that's a fascinating point, and something you mentioned there, injury prevention. I think that's something all of us were concerned about early on, but you also mentioned in the tennis schedule under a normal season, normal circumstances, and obviously 2020 is anything but normal, but these players have maybe never in their pro careers had five and a half months off, had six months off, unless it was due to an injury, and it does feel like we have seen so many of these players come out as fit as they have ever been, notable examples you know on the women's side someone like Jen Brady right who clearly from the world team tennis season onwards fit as a fiddle and so you know I'm curious uh the way you saw these five and a half months unfold the way that the benefit I suppose it had for so many of these players do you think it's something tennis should explore is it's the schedule conundrums of professional tennis have always been uh, a problem for the tours for the players but do you think that maybe the players will have learned from these five and a half months okay we actually really do need to build some time off in the schedule yeah i mean this is a discussion that happens every year and there's the the realistic discussion of it's a global tour every country in the world wants to see professional tennis 
So to be able to do that, you really do need the full year schedule to hit Asia, to hit Europe, to hit South America, Australia, North America. It's it's hard to plan up tournaments in a seven-month, eight-month, nine-month season that most other sports do. If you look at the NBA, the NFL, Major League Baseball, they're all on a seven- to nine-month type of scenario there with a significant off-season. Uh, tennis, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, is a global sport with a lot of dollars coming from different parts of the world. And these tours understand that. These players understand that as well, that for them to, to get the income that they're looking for, they do have to play uh, in different parts of the world. And that's what makes it challenging. So from pure physiological, psychological perspective, putting my sports science hat on, I would definitely recommend a you know seven to max nine month season would be ideal. But then putting the business and financial aspects of it all and the growth of the sport around the world, you can understand why an 11th month season, which it basically is now, uh, is the, the going situation. Mm-hmm. No, completely agree with you there. In the end, we all got to put food on the table, and that is uh, ultimately the end goal. These players are professionals. They are trying to make money. So, yes, to your point, as long as the tour keeps offering events in October, November, December, certainly these players are going to keep signing up to play them. And, again, I do want to talk about the Kovacs Institute. I want to talk about how you got started in the sport of tennis. But my last, you know, current, I suppose, current events, does that make sense? Sure, in theme of it being Election Day here in the U.S. We'll call it a current events question. Um, I think the biggest problem, and, you know, again, we've talked about it uh, already, some of these players have come out looking so physically fit, and the demands of the modern game, you almost have to be that fit 365 days a year, right? You can't afford to take a, blo- of a full block of a month off because uh, you just that's not going to cut it in today's game. And I'm curious, uh, because we've talked on this podcast before about the, you know, the nexus of nutrition, fitness, and where it leads in the modern game, but... Would you say a bigger issue now for many of these players is the concept of overtraining as opposed to undertraining? The idea that they're spending so much time on court that by the time they're playing matches, there's nothing left in the tank? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a defined balance, as we know, that to play professional tennis, it's one of the hardest uh, physical challenges any athlete in any sport has based on the length of the season and based on how many matches you have to play. So they're genetically different. The individuals that can play a full tennis season are born with some, you know, genetic and physiological um, skill sets to handle the workload. And a lot of people don't like to hear that, that, hey, if you just train hard and work hard, you'll be able to make it. That's not necessarily true. It's the same in every sport. You have individuals that have a certain composition, both uh, physically and psychologically, to handle the demands, handle the workload. And I, I don't see that many tennis players overtrain in the true sense of the word. I see a lot of them get frustrated, get um, burnt out mentally. But from a pure overtraining standpoint, it's, it's, um, it's very rare. Usually you see that when their passion wanes or their frustration increases. But if someone's passionate about it and they're excited about the day-to-day work, you rarely see those symptoms and signs of overtraining, uh, but it does happen. Uh, a lot of the time, it's just inefficient training, meaning that it, they're training the wrong way. They're wasting a lot of time on inefficient methods, on doing things that aren't necessarily transferring to wins and losses, um, and they're not recovering very well. So training has you know, two aspects. It has the time on court, time in the gym, time on the track. And then what do you do the other 8 to 12 hours a day that you're not actually training? And that time period is where we spend so much time on the recovery uh, aspects of things, which nutrition plays a huge role in. Yeah, no, that yeah, seems I like think, a perfect – I was going to say, that's a I'm perfect sorry, transition to get into it, right? Yeah, when I was going to say also like a, a good example um, – and obviously Mark knows him well and their friends, you know, is, is Mike Russell. I mean, Mike – you know, trained, well, still kind of does, even though he's retired, you know, harder than anybody in the world and, or at least as hard as anybody. And he had a ton of injuries early on in his career when he was just, 
like maximizing time in the gym. He wasn't, he'll tell you, he wasn't necessarily maximizing how he was going about doing the stuff in the gym. He was adding bulk and he was, I mean, he's ripped. He got as fit as it, as it comes. And then later on in his career where he had most of his great results and higher rankings, I mean, he didn't have the injuries and he was spending, you know, an hour a day on like the massage roller and extra stretching and icing. And so the, you know, he was spending the same cumulative amount of time, but he just, he, it wasn't just all in the gym, you know, maxing out the leg press you know it, it was it was an interesting change in his career it was pretty it was pretty cool to see um how do you you know how do you feel obviously you know mike and you've seen that you know he he was pretty instrumental in us developing our bar you know developing arrow bar and you know how how do you think that the nutritional side has changed you know going back to you know your time at auburn and you know to to now yeah, no, I mean, like every area of, um, you know, sports performance, nutrition has taken a huge priority, partly because it's relatively easy to adjust. It's when we say easy, it means you can put together a nutrition plan that will optimize sleep, it'll optimize energy, it'll optimize you know, protein synthesis, it'll optimize um, reduction in inflammation if an athlete does it the right way. Um, I spent quite a few years as, as the director of the Gatorade Sports Science Institute, and that was a lot of what we were doing. We were working with the best athletes across different sports and putting together plans to help those different areas and using nutrition um, as, the, as the major driver for that because nutrition's at the base of a lot of the training and recovery components. And unfortunately, a lot of players either don't like some of the suggestions or they're not used to some of the suggestions or they don't have the discipline to implement it on a regular basis. And the ones that do always see great benefits. And that's the important part of this entire field is knowing what to do. And as we know, nutrition is one of those fields that unfortunately has um, a lot of mysticism, myths around it. Um, you know, N of ones, what we call in the research world, where if it worked for me or it worked for my cousin, then it must work for everyone in the planet. And we have to be careful with using N of ones um, as our recommendation for everyone else, because every athlete has a di different genetic profile. Every athlete has a different composition between how they burn fat and carbohydrates. Uh, every athlete has a lot of different genetic factors that contribute to how various aspects of nutrition will get um, broken down for energy uh, and and also inflammation, which has become a big area of interest over the last decade or so. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And, you know, this gets us to uh, how the way sports science has changed uh, during your time within the sport. Then we can talk a little bit about your background because, you know, now people obviously know you as a sports scientist, as a consultant, as a Twitter guru on all things tennis. But once upon a time, you were a pretty fine player yourself. And for those who maybe out there don't know, can you tell them a little bit about your playing career, how you ended up as an All-American, as a doubles champion at Auburn? Yeah, so like a lot of folks, you know, I grew up um, playing competitive tennis. I grew up in Australia, so Leighton Hewitt was a contemporary of mine. Where we played our first competitive match when uh, I was eight, he was seven. So we've gone back a long, long way, uh, played a lot of tournaments, traveled a lot nationally together, um, and then, you know, played a few of the junior slams. Uh, claim to fame was played, Andy Roddick was my doubles partner at the Junior U.S. Open. Uh, that was about a year before he got his serve, and so I always give him a hard time about that. I wish he had his serve at that point. Um, so I was fortunate to be around some phenomenal players, world number one. So you got to see it firsthand, the work ethic of both those guys, the training, the way they put in the hours. Uh, and they were different. I mean, they, they definitely were. And then went to Auburn. You know, first rule of doubles is always pick a good doubles partner. So I was I was fortunate to play with a, a guy that had probably one of the best serves that no one's um a, a, you know could return. Uh, Andrew Colombo. So we played doubles together at Auburn. Uh, fortunate to win a NCAA title there. Then played professionally for a short period. Had some major shoulder problems during college, 
And that's really what got me into this whole world of sports science, biomechanics, physiology, try to understand the body better. Uh, and then, you know, got into the, the training world, uh, uh, strength and conditioning aspects of training, and then went into the research world because I wanted to answer those questions of why uh, do things happen and can we understand these things a little bit better rather than just giving opinion. And I was fortunate in some respects because when I was coming through this whole world of sports science wasn't really existing very much. You had a few people that were strength coaches in tennis that were bringing methods from football or, or basketball or baseball. And over the last 20 years, we've seen a huge shift to better training, more tennis-specific training, and understanding the demands of the sport a lot better as well. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And, you know, I'm curious how the game has changed because you talk about your shoulder problems. You talk about, again, uh, training with Leighton Hewitt growing up. And those are things, uh, you know, I, you think about Leighton Hewitt, you think about one of the fittest players of the past 20 years in tennis. And, you know, I, I'm curious, uh, as you mentioned, uh, now there's a little bit more science, I suppose, behind the training that's being done. But what were the things you were doing uh, when you were in college, when you were playing professionally? And, you know, maybe what do you wish you could have done differently yeah i mean we did a lot of things that looking back you're like it doesn't make any sense i mean when i was growing up in australia we had a australian rules football strength coach that would be doing a lot of our training so we would be um you know lifting certain movements that made no real sense for tennis and it was just a you know australian rules football workout we do a lot of extensive running that was not really that specific, you know, running, you know, seven miles at a time, um, you know, one is not very specific to tennis. It, it improves cardiovascular health, it improves aerobic function, but there's more efficient ways to do it without the same amount of pounding. Um, and, you know, things like that, which now we, we don't do a lot of that, we will do conditioning for the same amount of time but we'll make it a lot more specific to what the sport needs. More start-stops, more uh, time periods that are much more specific to long points um, because, you know, tennis is a start-and-stop sport. You have a lot of, you know, moderate-intensity movements, uh, some high-intensity movements, and a lot of resting. So you have to train the right way, and it also helps protect the body a little bit if you're – training more efficiently for the sport. So those are a couple of big things we'd like to have seen differently back 20, 30 years ago. Uh, also, you know, the injury prevention side of things. We know a lot more about what causes injuries now. We know where in the tennis body the majority of issues are, especially in junior players coming through. You can then get ahead of those and put players on injury prevention programs before they have any symptoms. Unfortunately, I get a lot of players that come to me after something bad has happened. They've hurt their knee, they've hurt their back, their shoulders, giving them all sorts of pain, and now they want to fix a lot of things. And you can do that if you catch it early enough, even with some pain and symptoms. But the preference is to get ahead of it and put these prevention programs in place from a young age so that hopefully the athletes don't experience that. Nice, yeah, I mean what you're talking about are the things that were strange movements and, you know, working hard. I mean, I know, you know, several guys that you played with in school and it's, I mean, you, you know, Jay, well, Berger, and, you know, he was our coach at, in, in college at Miami. And I mean, you know, the Jays as intense as they come and we, we did, we, we worked incredibly hard and, you know, Jay actually on this podcast has come on and been like, yeah, I think we were probably pounding the pounding the track a bit too much and probably maxing out our leg press and our bench too much and probably but at the time that's just you know that's what the linebackers coach at Miami was telling uh, our tennis team to do you know so and that and that's it, it that was standard across all colleges at the time in the professional game you didn't see as much of that but at the college level junior level you were seeing that and unfortunately, you still see a little bit of that. It's getting better, but at certain environments, you're still seeing that, you know, in, inefficient. Not saying it's completely wrong because all those movements have some value, but you've got to know how much volume to do of it and when and how to implement it. 
Yeah, I think it's getting a little more standard of even like, I mean, I only know your relationship with it from, you know, that kid Logan that I coach who's at North Carolina now at Chapel Hill. But, you know, even there, like, you know, 15 years ago, the basketball guy was just doing basketball movements with the tennis team. Now, you know, you have guys like, like you consulting and working with their programs. And so, and I think that's why you see teams like that that have made a priority. I know Virginia has made a, a big priority of, you know, tennis specific stuff as well as North Carolina. And like, I think it's, you, you see a clear difference. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. they, they realize it's, it's a different sport requiring different training and having folks that have studied this. And that was actually one of the reasons we set up the International Tennis Performance Association about a decade ago. It's a group of different experts in physical therapy, medicine, strength and conditioning. was trying to put together curriculums for coaches, trainers, therapists that would actually know how to train tennis athletes better using research, using good data that shows them how to better set up these type of programs and you know fortunately a lot of these people that have gone through these curriculums are now working throughout the college game in the junior space and in, in about 50 countries so that's been that's been a big shift and we've been fortunate enough to see that happen over the last decade or so Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, during your time, obviously, as you mentioned, you form, uh, you know, you have been just ingrained in the sports science community, particularly within tennis. And uh, for you, you know, uh, last question on your college career quickly, because I have the result in front of me. Three set victory in the final over Lipsky and Martin, six two three six six two to capture that 2002 NCAA doubles championship. Now, you know, again, uh, I, I, it's not a one size fit all right. Should a player go play college tennis? Is it helpful for their development but seeing the way you know the age of a player inside the top 100 has gotten later and later these past 10 years when you are talking to various players who are wondering should I go play college tennis should I go directly to play the professionals what are the benefits you see physically uh, for players who I, I suppose what you know which is the course you would recommend and what are the benefits to a young player going to college yeah so this is a great question and something We've spent a lot of time on um, trying to base it on data. We've done a lot of studies. It's called the Player Pathway Study, and it actually analyzes players over the last two decades of what it takes to be a top 100 professional ATP and WTA player. And based on that information, we have some really clear guideposts uh, about what objectively and where objectively you should be at certain points throughout your junior career to make that decision process a little bit easier. Um, in general, the vast majority of players, if they're asking that question, they should go to college. But just based on the numbers and the historical data, take an emotion out of it. Um, that's just the, the way the numbers break out and how tough it is to make it. Um, you pretty much have to be, you know, in your age group and actually a, a, a year or two above your age group the best or if not one of the best in your age group at 16. Um, so unless you're that one or two people each age group, pretty much everyone else, the college pathway makes the most sense. One, it gives you time to develop. Financial resources are available there, which is a huge challenge playing minor league tennis, as everyone knows. It's not easy to travel and, and play. And even if you do well in some of these minor league tournaments, you're not making enough to cover your expenses yet. So from a pure financial standpoint, there's huge benefits of going to college. The academic side, you know, take that even off the table. You know, having the opportunity to potentially go back and finish your degree at some later point is worth millions of dollars to someone in the long run over their life. So there's so many of those financial benefits, but specifically on the tennis side, if you go to the right place and you get the right training with the right coaching and the right support staff, you've got a full team around you on a daily basis that's there to help you improve your weaknesses, develop the areas you need to develop to take you to that next level. So mm -hmm. to me, it's, a, it's always a pretty easy discussion to have if you take the emotion out. And then once mm -hmm. the emotion comes in, of course, we know some people are a bit unrealistic about their level at the current time they think they're better than they are because 
they're great in their state. They're number one in their section. They may even be really highly nationally ranked, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're on that same level as some of the top players in the world um, at your age and really one or two years younger than you uh, is who you're competing with many times. So it's one of those great discussions to have, but my biggest recommendation is be objective, get advice from people that have done it for many years that understand both the junior collegiate and professional space because the decision-making is relatively easy to make uh, if you take the emotion out of it. Mm-hmm. And it, it, you, I'm sure for you, the exception is when a student comes to you and say, hey, Dr. Kovacs, I'd like to go to Alabama. And you're like, uh, I think you're ready to go pro, son. You're like, you're, you're good. You don't need to go. No need for that. But um, obviously, no, for you. Yeah, I, just, I, just, lo- so you, you may know, I actually spent three years at Alabama. I did my PhD <laughs> I there. Do know. So, I'm, yeah. so I'm on both sides of the fence there on the Auburn-Alabama rivalry. I, I, I can I can go either way depending on who's got the better football team this year. <laughs> That's good. But it's no, good. Hedging, um, hedging the bets keeps on the that, emotion out. On that topic, you know, like you said with the juniors, I mean, I know I spoke to you some about the kid a while back. I mean, yeah, it's. I mean, I I coached a kid who finished one in the country 16s and then one in the country 18s last year, one in the country 18s this year, and yeah, it was. I mean, he, he got some very good advice, actually, from a bunch of our Aerobar people. I mean, he I had him speak to Stevie and Johnson, and I had him speak to Mike Russell and James and even Jay. And, you know, they basically told him, they're like, if you can find one thing that you think isn't ready, then you need to go to school. And, you know, he's a, a 6'3 kid who is weighing 165 you know, and had really never been in a weight room. And it was like, well, there you go. There's there's the, there's the one thing, you know, who cares if you're one in the country, you know, you, you need to be strong, you need to be pliable, you need to be. So yeah, it was a, a no brainer. And I think, yeah, I think too many people just say, well, I never lose in the United States. So I'm turning pro. And yeah, that's. Yeah. The, the only thing I do have to say is sometimes too many people use college as a, as a hedge and that may get in the way of that. Um, focus that a lot of the top pros have. That's the only thing they've ever thought about doing. They've had that as their goal and they've committed to that lifestyle and what's needed to be great at that level. Sure. Fortunately, the college environment is so valuable and it provides so many great options that we have a lot of juniors that are sort of maybe not fully committing to the pro mindset and the pro lifestyle at a younger age which some of them should be. And there's players that pretty much anyone in the game that coaches or is in an administrative type role knows who those few players are. There's not more than a couple every age group that have that ability, that skill set. They just maybe need to be guided in the right way that, hey, you are good enough to go straight to the pros, but you have to act like that every day and put your plans together and train the right way. But you know, there's there's only there's only a few of those in any age group that, um, and they usually stand out. Most people know who they are because of their results, their demeanor, their game style, things like that. Sure. Yeah. No. It's um, yeah. This kid, I wanted to surround him with guys like Will Blumberg and guys like that that kind of act like that every day, even in college. So yeah, it was yeah. no. Absolutely. I mean, and for you, Coach, uh, you talk about the generation. I know you had the chance to uh, work well, alongside of the USTA and, uh, you know, now on Pro Tour. You see the 97s in particular, Tommy Paul, Fran- uh, Tommy Paul, Riley Opelka, Taylor Fritz, all having, you know, similar success on the Pro Tour. And I believe you worked with that group specifically, but just in general, uh, as you, you know, your time with the USTA and you reflect on it, because obviously for American men's tennis, the the big number, no Grand Slam champions uh, in singles since Andy Roddick uh, on the men's side. But, you know, what do you think during your time at the USTA, I suppose, what sort of training changes did you guys make? What were the sort of things that maybe American men's players weren't doing that they needed to be doing to compete in the modern game? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a great question, especially that group. And I worked with all of them since around 13 
uh, years of age, so completely throughout their junior development years. And as we know, every athlete has a different personality, different game style, different family background. And that cohort that you mentioned, and there's a few others in there, Michael Moe, Stefan Kozlov was in that group as well. Um, and, you know, there, there's a, and they're all different and they're all going to have different trajectories. Some are going to, what we call make it, however we define that. Some of them are going to underachieve and hopefully some of them are going to overachieve. And the challenge with all of them is, you know, they're all, and they'll admit that they're missing a piece right now that a top five player has. And one of it may be movement. One of them may be uh, mental resiliency. One of it may be professionalism. One of them may be, you know, uh, the ability to strategize and, you know, break down their opponents in matches as well as they should. And that's where all of them need to find that next gear, that next piece. And some of them won't. We know that. They either don't have the skill set. They don't have the desire. They don't have the work ethic. Their lifestyle distracts them. Um, but we're hoping, I think everyone's hoping that, you know, one of that group and potentially some younger guys that are coming up behind them are going to put the pieces together a little bit more and be a perennial top five, top ten player. Because once you get into that stage, then you can start talking grand slams and things like that. But you first really have to, prove yourself i think on the men's side it's a little bit harder for a player 30 40 50 to come out and win a grand slam we're seeing it a bit more frequently on the women's side where you'll get someone slightly lower ranked that has the ability but they're able to go deep in slams uh, you know early in their careers uh just due to the five set environments due to how some of these top players are so good at fighting through tough matches that we haven't really seen that as much yet uh, on the men's side. But all those guys, you know, have things they still need to work on significantly. And they all know, and they're all working diligently on trying to improve those areas. Um, so it should be an exciting time the next three or four years. They're all really young. I think that's the challenge for a lot of folks is uh, you're expecting them to be fully developed um, at this age, 22, 23, 24 where I don't think those guys will really be hitting their peaks until 28, 29, and maybe even into early 30s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and believe me, I could do 30 minutes on each of them. But, you know, no two athletes are the same, right? And you've alluded to that. And so the training for them is never going to be the same. But I'm curious your thoughts on the idea of, you know, maximizing your strengths versus minimizing your weaknesses from a training perspective, because obviously you have to strike both notes. But, you know, a guy who you have worked with, I'm sure, uh, in Taylor Fritz, I think that's a good example of that, because, you know, in terms of just natural shoulder arm talent. You're not going to find people more talented than Taylor. His ability to explode through the ball, that serve, the way the kick serve just jumps off of his racket, really explodes. It's special. And yet, you know, respectively, he would, you know, kick my but uh, it, movement has been something he has struggled with during his career. And I think you saw him come out of these five and a half months uh, in much better shape. And yet it's also quite clear now at, you know, yes, he'll get better, but he's never going to be an elite mover the way a Tommy is, the way a Francis is. And so I'm curious, how do you strike that balance between, you know, maximizing your strength with which for Fritz, obviously the firepower versus also minimizing your weaknesses? Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where it all depends on how big a weakness is it against the competition that you're playing. Because your point, using Taylor as an example, and he knows it and he's worked on it and he's got better every year at it, mm -hmm. but he has to compete against Federer's and Nadal's and Djokovic's of the world that are phenomenal. I mean, they're just a level above movement-wise, just about anyone else on tour. So it's not only Taylor, but it's everyone else that is competing against those three. And to be in that level, you have to up that game because if you've got any weakness now, you're going to get exposed. And these players are too good. It used to be 20 years ago, you could have a shaky backhand. You could not move great, but have a huge serve and big forehand. And you could still really do damage and, and sort of hide it a little bit based on court surfaces, based on racket technology. Now you can't hide anything because the players are too good. 
there is no defensive positions anymore on the court. Everything's an offensive position. Doesn't matter really where you are. You can do something somewhat offensive with your racket based on the technology and based on the stability and strength that many of these players have in wide positions. So you have to spend a lot of time, especially at the level you're talking about, top 30 in the world, on your weaknesses because you can't really have a weakness. If you're talking about a junior player, working on your strengths is really important, even more so sometimes than at the pro level because that's going to win you a lot of matches. You know, because you can sort of hide a little bit more some of your weaknesses at younger ages if you're fast enough to only hit forehands if your backhand's not so good or if you've got a serve and you don't move as well yet, you can still blow off some guys and girls based on your power. So the weakness development should happen throughout your junior years, but it's going to really be vital the higher up you get because the margin for error is so much smaller. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And you start to talk about, you know, the the modern demands of the physical game here. And, you know, Taylor, again, a good example, 6'4", six, 6'5", six, good length, the serve, the forehand just looks so easy for him. And, you know, that list of players who fit that description, I really do think in the men's game, and I'm curious, you know, this gets to the question, you look at the current players on the rise. I mean, Zverev, Medvedev, they're 6'6", six, six, they're lengthy, they're fluid, they're these athletes that really tennis has never seen before. And obviously on the extreme end of that you have a Riley Opelka but it's crazy that a guy like Tommy Paul now who's you know 6'2 and probably 180 185 I don't think physically he's ever going to have any issues but you know he's small compared to some of these modern men's players and again to focus on the men's side of the game do you think we're getting to a point where you're gonna almost have to be 6'4 6'5 6'6 to reach the top 10 just simply because of the physical advantages that size gives you Yeah, no, I think the good thing about tennis is there's still room for some smaller players and smaller is a relative term uh, because, you know, having a serve on the men's game especially and on the women's game it's becoming more and more important now as well is a huge advantage and pretty much a requirement now. You can't really be at the top of the game without a highly efficient, effective serve. It may not be the fastest but you better hit your spots unbelievably well uh, and get a lot of free points or set up your serve plus one really well. Uh, So being taller is an advantage if you can still move well. And that's what we're seeing now is in this group of athletes coming through that we maybe didn't see 20 years ago. You would have Todd Martins of the world that was 6'6", but didn't move so well. And Todd will tell you that. I'm good friends with Todd, so it's, it's something we talk about a lot is he's amazed at the movement of some of these folks that are six foot six, six foot seven, and they move like a six two person. And Del Potro was one of the first, and he, you know, probably wasn't the greatest of movers, but he was the best mover at the time for someone his size. And since then, you've seen this, you know, growth of that taller mover. Riley Opelka, for how tall he is, is one of the best movers you'll ever see for someone mm-hmm. of his size. And I've worked uh, a lot in other sports, in the NBA, and you know he's a legitimate seven-footer that moves really, really well. So if that's what we're seeing and that's what you need to do to compete in tennis, it does make that height a, a big advantage as long as the movement's still there. But we also mm-hmm. see someone like Diego Schwartzman who can still sure. compete, can still win a lot of matches. And, and go deep in slams. And that's a great sign for the sport that you get those contrasting abilities. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. You see guys like Kasmanovic and Nakashima, Alejandro Davidovich, Fokina. They're not huge, but they can hang physically with anyone. The flip side is then you see a guy like a Karen Hatchnov where you're like, oh my God, in another generation, this guy would have been the Greek god of men's tennis. And now he's just another six foot six ripped athlete. And like the Hubi Hercotses or Sasha Bublik, who at six six is firing 150 down on you. You're like, okay, that's going to be pretty tough to beat today. It's, you know, for me, it's, it, I think, it, it, yeah. The, the Diego Schwartzmans of the world continue to exist, but it's going to be hard for that. I just think they could get boxed out because, yeah, half of tennis is serving. And if you're six foot six, your serve is going to be, I suppose, just you'll have the advantage. But, you know, looking at the modern men's game, I'm just curious, and you can throw out any name you want, and then a curious same question for the women's game. 
who is a young player who impresses you physically, who you're just like, oh my God, I, I think this person could be a stud. For me, it's after hearing Andre Rublev and Felix Ogier Aliassim hit forehands in person, I'm like, I've never heard a ball sound like that coming off of a racket before. And just the racket speed they produce to me, it's crazy. Who for you, you know, men's and women's game right now are the people that jump off the screen? Yeah, no, I mean, Felix has has the complete package. He's got the strokes, he's got the mechanics, he's got the movement, he's got the size, and he's got the work ethic and professionalism. So he's the one in the next five years where if things don't go off track, looks to you know be really exciting. Um, Rublev, I've I've seen as well as Felix since they were thirteen years old, and Rublev's such a hard worker. And I mean, when you watch him practice, as you mentioned. He just hits everything as hard as he can. And, you know, it's he's going to have some good weeks and bad weeks when he plays with that little margin, how he does. But he, he is that's the, that's the way of playing. I mean, it's just like what's happening in golf as well. And I do some stuff in golf. And it's all about, you know, training for speed and training for power at the young ages because that's what's needed at the professional game. And if you're not training like that at a young age, it's not something you can just pick up, you know, when you're 18 or 19. You have to train like that. So, the, the, you know, there's, there's a lot of young ones coming up, which are exciting to see. You know, on the women's side, uh, it's, re- it's really, really interesting. We've got a, a lot of really good young uh, American females that are exciting. You know, Robin Montgomery is going to be a player. He's got some skills to, you know, to, to look at there that, you know, can really do a lot. You know, Anne Lee's already moving up quickly. She just had a great result this week. So you've got a lot of these players coming through um, that have sort of more complete games, I would say, than a lot of players 15 years ago. And that's just because of the development. It's what's needed because if you're, you know, and it's exciting to see. So the, the challenge is, you know, you've got, you know, Coco Goff, who's got the athleticism, but there's still a lot of technical work there that needs to happen, and you hope that that will happen because you know the physical skills are there, the competitiveness is there, but there's still some stuff that you want to see tighten up a little bit there because for her to consistently be at the top of the game where I think most people think she should be in the next year or two, but she's still very young, and you just hope that things work out really well there. Mm-hmm. No, I completely agree with you. Well, then, home stretch of questions for you here. Uh, let's stick with an aerobar themed question because when I was growing up playing, and you know, I wasn't playing at the highest levels like some of these athletes, but I was a guy who I just didn't like to eat food on court. It just wasn't something I liked to do. I'd go and eat my stuff after. I'd be fine, or at least I felt fine during the match. How wrong was I for not doing that? How important is it to fuel yourself and to turn to the aero, you know, aerobar, the only kind of specific energy bar in the business? Go to aerobar.com. Use promo code crack 15 that one's for you mark aerosmith um but just in general uh you know mark kovacs how important is it to properly fuel yourself during a match yeah i mean it's one of the the most underutilized advantages that players have and you know we've studied this for a long time about when do we see drop-offs in performance and normally it's around you know, 60 to 90 minutes of exercise, you will see a dip in performance if you haven't fueled appropriately. So meaning that you have this drop in blood sugar levels, you see this drop in energy production, um, aerobic capacity results can can dip as well. So, you know, if, if you're out on the courts for more than an hour, fueling becomes super important. So, you know, an hour and a half match, three hour match, that type of window, you should be fueling and you've got to realize that it takes a good 15 to 30 minutes from when you chew something to when you actually get the benefit of it. So you've got to time it right. That's why you see a lot of players, they'll be eating something early in the first set. And a lot of people ask, well, why are they eating? They were just in the locker room. Shouldn't they have eaten something in the locker room? And it's not because they need that energy that moment. It's because they want it available in 30 minutes or so from the time. So timing becomes really important. And, you know, the biggest thing with a lot of players is, you know, you know that you've got to make sure that your carbohydrate levels stay at a reasonable level because tennis is a demanding sport, especially in hot and humid conditions. You've got to make sure that your fueling protocols, and everyone has slightly different fueling protocols, 
but we've got to make sure that they're getting the right amounts of nutrients in on a consistent basis. And it should be done on a structured way for each athlete, especially at the higher levels. If it's more at the recreational level, you know, consuming a few bites every changeover is a good general recommendation. Um, but if you're playing at a higher level, you definitely want to get a personalized nutrition plan for your on-court fueling, but also what you do before you go on court and then hopefully after to replenish as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. And of course, you should also order yourself up some aero bars because that's the obvious choice for the fuel you could have uh, on court. But all right, again, rapid fire here down the home stretch. Tennis analytics versus other sports analytics. Is it fair to say tennis is lagging a bit behind? No, I wouldn't say it's lagging. I say the use of it by most coaches and players is lagging. The knowledge we have is unreal. I mean, I've been involved in the analytics space for over a decade, and we're getting a ton of data every day at the highest levels for matches from, you know, uh, analysis of year-long match and, you know, scenarios. So we have the data at the highest levels, but the challenge is interpreting it and the misinterpretation of it is a mess in tennis, I got to say. People take a simple statistic, use the you know, zero to four um, point length, for example, and they take that one stat, which is 60 to 70% of all points, whether it's junior or professional, is approximately 60 to 70% or less than four shots. What does that tell you? It doesn't tell you much at all by itself. That means there's 30 to 40% of points are longer than that. And if you understand how matches are won and lost, it's usually anywhere between 4 and 6%. In a competitive match, the winner wins 4 to 6% more points than the loser. So if you've got 30 to 40% of all points that are available to you that are longer than four shots and you lose most of them, you're not winning any matches. So it's really, really important to not misinterpret um, statistics and data and there's nothing inaccurate about the data itself it's just how a lot of people have used it or misunderstood it or misunderstood the difference between what a match looks like and what the skills are required during training to actually achieve what a match looks like which is very different as well so i would say there's plenty of data out there and there's some really good people working in it from an analytics perspective it's just not as as fine-tuned or as as, uh, well-developed as some other sports, partly because there's so many more variables in tennis. Surface, racket technology, balls, uh, temperature, humidity, location, five sets versus three sets on the men's side. Every opponent that you play could potentially change how you play your matches, which changes the analytics from match to match. Whereas in baseball, it's where a lot of this came from, it's a lot simpler to analyze data because there's less variables. You know? And so we, ha- we have to be careful with how we interpret it. And my suggestion is um, don't take a, a, a sentence or two and try to apply that uh, by itself. Understand the context of it. I wish you could see the smile on my face after that answer. I remember in college once, this is a random thought, but uh, I think it was my sophomore year, I was poking around and I saw some article you wrote or something interesting going on at the Kovacs Institute. And I was like, huh, I wonder if I could apply for the job there. And then I looked at the qualifications and I was like, oh, no, I could not. And now I know why I could not. Uh, But obviously, uh, you know, I really appreciate your answer there because I know that's something uh, for even juniors who are parents who are watching film of their kids play or whatever it may be. how to interpret that, how those stats that, and uh, how to analyze it properly. That's something they look for. And you mentioned this earlier, you have done studies, you've noticed there are clear trends, clear, you know, whether it's little injuries or things that seem to persist across the board in junior tennis. What are, you know, the biggest trends? Where do the majority of issues come for juniors? Yeah, so injury profiles in juniors um, are relatively consistent. Uh, lower back um, stress reactions, uh, pars fractures is another thing that we see quite a bit, especially during the growth periods. So 13 through 17 age group, that kind of uh, age range. And nearly always that's due to poor technique on the surf, majority of the time. It's individuals that don't have good surf technique and it's sort of trying to 
make the serves without the right technique. So they're actually over-rotating early through the spine and they're collapsing, also known as flexing too rapidly. So that's a real concern. And that can usually be fixed or prevented with really good serve technique. And then be careful of excessive volume, um, especially during those growth stages. So lower back is, is a big one. Knee issues in the junior players. Most of the time, the knee issues are osteoarthritis or general knee tendonitis. And majority of those will go away over time. We see it in a lot of sports. Basketball gets it. You know, we see it just because of the age issue. So normally what we recommend is any first sign of joint pain, whether it's knee pain, shoulder, elbow pain. You know, if it's not severe enough where you think you need to go see a specialist, take 30% of your volume off immediately. So if you're a high-level junior and you're practicing, you know, 20 hours a week, you know, take six hours off and, you know, adjust your volume by 30% less. So that would be 14 hours a week. And for a lot of players, that may be enough to reduce the, the discomfort. Uh, if it still is bothering you, you know, drop it again to 50%. So that would drop a 20-hour a week to 10 hours a week. And if you still got problems then, then you definitely want to see someone because by dropping the volume, it could just be a volume issue. You're just over overtraining a little bit. Um, so those are the, the couple big ones. Uh, and then the shoulder, a lot of the time, you hope you don't see the shoulder problems at 13, 14, 15. That's a real concern. But we start seeing symptoms that could result in shoulder problems, meaning poor posture, more internal rotation of what's called the glenohumeral head, which is the main kind of top of the bone that runs into the shoulder. And that over-rotates early. And over time, you start getting impingement-related symptoms and injuries. And that's something you want to just be aware of and make sure you're doing all your injury prevention work on your shoulder to prevent that. So those would be the sort of three big areas that you want to deal with in the junior player to try to prevent some of that. Well, I, I just want you to know that as someone, my right heel has been bothering me a little bit. I'm someone who likes to get out there and run in particular because I'm not I'm not going to go to gyms anymore. Uh, so that's really what's available to me. And my foot's been bothering me. So I just wrote that down. Cut down 30% of run. That sounds good. Hopefully all of the listeners at home will take that advice as well. And again, last two questions for you here. Um, you know, uh, just a fun one for you in terms of your own tennis, uh, because obviously you're an NCAA doubles champion. Uh, does it frustrate you now to see players perhaps not serve in volley with the frequency that you once did? Yeah, no, I mean, it's not so much frustrating. It's just, it's an opportunity to, to force your opponent to play against a different style because they're so good now at playing from the back of the court. We haven't really seen anyone. I mean, M- Misha Zverev tried it a few years ago and had some success for a short period of time basically coming in off everything, and it, it really created some discomfort for players. Uh, the challenge right now, as we know, the courts are slower than they have been historically. Uh, the balls are slower. It's been a concerted effort by the folks that make those decisions at the top of the game uh, to slow the environments down, potentially have more rallies. If they sped the courts up just a little bit, I think you would see an immediate shift into more people serving volleying and coming in more. But as of right now, there isn't a desire for that to happen at the majority of tournaments. And it's really sad actually seeing Wimbledon play more like a hard court than a grass court. It would be great if Wimbledon actually said, let's make this you know, uh, a little bit more like traditional grass court tennis because I think it would give a little bit of a difference. But also we've got to recognise there's certain players at the top of the game that fans want to see and having them be successful on all surfaces is probably a good thing for the game as well. So there's a balance there about what to do. But of course, you'd love to see contrasting styles a little bit more. I think throughout the history of the game, that's what's made these rivalries so impactful. You know, Chrissy and Martina, Borg and McEnroe, Sampras and Agassi. I mean, you see those rivalries, and the reason they were so great is because of the contrasting styles. 
Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, then my final question for you, and, you know, I think this is something that can maybe apply for all of our listeners at home. Let's say, and I'm just going to name this example person. Let's say his name is Alex Gruskin. And, you know, he played tennis his entire life. He played club during college, so he got to hit at least once, twice a week. He was able to keep his level up. But then he joined the working world, and he wasn't able to play for an extended period. And now when he goes on court, the strokes are still there, but the first step is not what it once was to say the least it's probably a step and a half slow and again this is a hypothetical Alex Gruskin not this Alex Gruskin the hypothetical Alex Gruskin who has lost his first step what are the little things us I suppose normal athletes who you know maybe don't have the time to train like we once did but what are the little things we can do to start getting that first step back to maybe get you know in sharper shape than than we would than we currently are yeah it's it happens. It's, it's part of the aging process, but we can reverse it with the right type of training. The first thing is get leg strength. So, you know, lunges, you know, things like that, where you're putting some pretty good amount of weight on your legs, on your hips, hamstrings, quads, calves. So, you know, it can be as simple as, you know, a series of lunges that can be really beneficial because if you don't have the leg strength, you're not going to push hard into the ground. And that's the first step of speed is you have to create force into the ground. So that's step one is get the strength in your legs back uh, and go through a, you know, at least three days a week, ideally. You want to try to hit the legs three days a week. It doesn't have to be super heavy, but it needs to have enough load that you feel like you're actually, you know, fatiguing on the eighth or tenth rep of a, a lung series or something like that. So that would be uh-huh. first. The second is, you know, work on some type of higher velocity movements because one of the biggest challenges is the signal from the brain to the muscles. If you don't use those, those uh, they actually, you know, don't work as well. Um, so we have to retrain uh, that a little bit. And so higher velocity movements. So do some short sprints. Get out there, even without the racket, and just sprint five to ten yards. You don't need anything more than about ten yards in general. So keep it short. But work on sprinting 10 yards, stop, do it again, work on your change of directions as well. So if you work on those two areas, um, that's going to make a big difference. Get some strength in the legs and work on retraining the brain to move quickly. When you said you need to get some strength in your legs, I immediately checked the Skype camera. I was like, can he see my legs? I was like, how does he know this? Um, and I appreciate, no, it's, it's uh, for all of us. Yes, the lunges, the little sprints. I think that is advice everyone can appreciate. I will say what would make me very happy, Coach, as I have your bio uh, from your website in front of me, if on the appeared, featured, or quoted in section under the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal, you just throw the Crack Records podcast now as well, because for us, obviously... Uh, it was a pleasure to have you appear here. And, uh, you know, there are a few out there in the tennis industry who have your background with tennis analytics, with sports analytics, sports science. And that really is the direction this sport is headed. So, Coach, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. And know that you always have a spot open for you on our Crack Rackets podcasts. No, I appreciate everything you're doing for the sport as well. I mean, quality information is hard to find sometimes. So always here, happy to help. If people want to reach me, they can reach out anytime. Then thanks for all you're doing as well. Of course. So should I apply for that Kovacs Institute internship? Sure. We'll put you to work. (laughs) Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks, Kovacs. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, anytime. Yeah, see ya. Yep, take care, coach. Bye. Hope all of you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Mark Kovacs. Again, hopefully we will have the chance to have him back on the show, particularly during the offseason. Would love to hear more of his thoughts about the bigger picture. You know, what are the shifts he's seeing in tennis? What are the little things maybe tactically, maybe again analytically, maybe from a fitness standpoint that he thinks separates those at the top of the game from everyone else? But really appreciate him taking the time to chat. I said, hey, 30 to 40 minutes work. He said, Alex, go as long as you want. And I was like, all right, I'm not going to abuse that. 
that time go over an hour, but certainly he would have been willing to in that, and we are greatly appreciative of that because, of course, again, there are few more uh, few people with better expertise on sports science and how it relates to tennis than Dr. Mark Kovacs. So thank you to Dr. Kovacs for chatting, and of course, a huge shout out to Mark Aerosmith, our friends over at Aerobar, for setting this interview up. Again, if you would like to change your nutrition, you want to get that extra boost, as uh, you know, Dr. Kovacs says, clearly you can get that extra bit of difference if you are providing yourself with the proper fuel. You're doing everything it takes uh, to put yourself in a position to succeed on the tennis court. You can do that by going to aerobar.com, using the promo code CRACK15, ordering up yourself of aerobars. Again, like we said at the top, much with voting, be the change you want to see. You want to change your diet? It's as simple as doing it, folks. You can do so, of course, with our friends at aerobar.com. And uh, I will also say, if you need any equipment things, you need to update your rackets, your strings, whatever, we're all getting ready to change seasons. Hopefully, uh, we'll be able to play indoor tennis safely. And if we are, maybe you need to adjust your tension. Maybe you need to just get a new frame. You can find everything you're looking for from with our friends at Midwest Sports. Go to MidwestSports.com. Use that promo code CR15. A couple of other things real quick just to touch on. Of course, so many things going down uh, here at the home stretch of this 2020 season. We've got the action in Paris this week. Of course, we've got Sophia and the WTA event in Linz next week. And then the final event of the ATP season, the 2020 year-end finals in London. That final week, of course, ITF Challenger events littered throughout as well. Plenty of storylines to monitor. Of course, we cover all of them day in, day out on our mini break podcast. If you want to listen to that or find any of our crack rack, other Crack Rackets content, The Deciding Point, our new YouTube series, or any of the other things we do, go to our website, CrackRackets.com. You need those more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, or at Crack Rackets. You want to message me directly, I'm at Great Shot Pod. Shout out, as always, to our super producers, Max Flickner and Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job they do day in, day out, making all of this content possible. But with that in mind, for my wonderful co-host, Mark Aerosmith, for our wonderful guest, Dr. Mark Kovacs, our super producer, Max Fliegner, and Daniel Westhoff, and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I am your host, Alex Gruskin. You've been listening to another edition of the Cracked Interviews Podcast. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll talk to you all soon. Thanks, everyone.